having it all is not enough. That's uh, what I've entitled our message this morning as we look at the rich young ruler. Let me tell you a story. There was a young entrepreneur who came to Clive Palmer and asked him, what must I do to achieve lifelong happiness? And old Clive replied, why do you ask me about happiness? The only thing worth living for in life is financial security, so obey the market commandments. Which ones, the young entrepreneur asked. Don't buy in a bull market, always borrow more than you invest and diversify, Clive replied. All these things I have done, the inspiring billionaire replied. What, what is the one thing that I lack? Go and sell your boyhood farm, mortgage your mother's house, and invest your life savings into high bond yields. Then buy a new Tesla and come follow my example. The young entrepreneur hurried off to his broker, rejoiced thinking he had found the secret to lifelong happiness. Then Clive said to his secretary, call my lawyer and have him buy the young entrepreneur's boyhood farm, his mother's house, and sell him some high-yield bonds from my bankrupt rising, uh, uh, my bankrupt high-rise development, for I am never happy until I've got one more dollar. Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. There's a great deal to admire about this young man in our gospel story. I think he was a man uh, with good moral character. I think we can only admire his determination to obey the law of God uh, to the best of his ability. I think that you and I would admire his courage in coming to Jesus. I think you and I would admire his uh, humility in admitting his needs. And I certainly think that we would admire him for his uh, aggressiveness. For it was his aggressiveness that got him where he was in life to start with. And so there's more. He asked the right question for the right reason. And he becomes, and he, and he also comes to the, the right person. He says, Lord, tell me, what must I do? If you tell me, I'll do it, he says. Now, he was like a lot of ancient Jewish people of the first century, people who believed that after they had obeyed the law and the commandments of God, that there was still one great virtuous thing to do. And if they could find out what that was, and if they could only do it, it would guarantee them their entrance into heaven. That's how the ancient Jews thought. With a sense of lack in his life, this young man comes to Jesus wanting to know one thing needed to gain his entrance into heaven. The young man asked the question, the young man who asked the question asked the wrong question on two accounts. The first account he asked it wrong was he was wrong to think that there was something that he could do to gain entrance into heaven. And number two, he was wrong to think that he could do it if only he knew it. So he comes to the Lord and with, with, with this very crucial question. And Jesus gives him an answer which 
has confused people over the centuries, over the generations. The question simply, the question simply is simple, is simple enough. It seems simple enough. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But when we read the story and when we read what Jesus says back to him, it appears that either Jesus doesn't understand the question or Jesus doesn't know the question to the answer or Jesus just doesn't want to give him a straight answer. So when we read the question and read the answer, it doesn't seem as if the question and the answer really go together. So in verse 18, uh, gives us the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And verse 19 gives us Jesus' answer, gives us Jesus' answer. And he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now that statement, besides being confusing and seemingly irrelevant, that statement was, or that statement has, has confused people into thinking that perhaps Jesus means something like, well, God is good and you shouldn't call me good because I'm really not God. In fact, that's precisely the reverse to what Jesus is saying or what Jesus means. Jesus is taking the word good literally. The young man had called him good teacher. He said it out of respect, but he wasn't really thinking of the meaning of the word, the literal meaning of the word. So Jesus understands that all true goodness comes from God. He's saying, when you call me good, do you really know what you are saying? If I am good in the ultimate sense, in the literal sense, it's because I'm not merely a good person, but because I am God in human flesh. And so when Jesus says, why do you call me good? He's asking the question, do you really know who I am? Do you really know who you are talking to? And do you really know what you are saying? Before the young man can even answer, Jesus just plunges right in and he says, do you know the Ten Commandments? Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness and honour your mother and father. That's, an, that's another part of the story that seems a little bit irrelevant to us. This bloke wants to know how to get to heaven. And in response, Jesus engages him in what appears to be an abstract theological discussion. Uh, and then he brings up the Ten Commandments. So what's really going on here? The first century, this, 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 this first century yuppie comes to Jesus. And what he wants is what most people want today. He wants a list. Jesus, give me a list of things that I need to do to make sure that I go to heaven. Just give me a list and I will check it off one by one. And when I get to the bottom of that list, I'll know that I'm going to heaven. So Jesus says, fine, if you want a list, I'll give you a list. Here's my first list. It's called the Ten Commandments. Why don't you just try keeping those for a while? And notice that Jesus doesn't quote the first part of the Ten Commandments. He only quotes from the second part of the Ten Commandments. Do you remember the study we did on the Ten Commandments, the Bible, the, the, the Gospel series, the, the, the sermon series of last year? No, come on. <laughs> What's the first part of the Ten Commandments about? Vertical, isn't it? It's vertical. The first one's vertical. Thou shalt have no gods before me. No idols. 
You shall not take my name in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath holy. Those commandments all deal with our relationship with God. They're vertical. The other six commandments are horizontal. They're dealing with humanity's relationship with their fellow human being. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not cover your neighbor's wife, and so on and so on. Jesus doesn't quote the first part of the Ten Commandments at all. He quotes from the second part because this is where this bloke's problem is. Jesus says, look, if you want a list, here's my list. Keep the Ten Commandments. If you keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, when you get to the end, you'll be okay. And look at what this bloke says. All these things I have kept since I was a boy. I have no doubt that this young man was sincere. However, it is possible to be sincerely wrong. And this poor bloke was sincerely wrong. If anyone says, I have perfectly kept the Ten Commandments from the beginning of my life until now, you automatically know two things about that person, don't you? Yep. Number one, they don't know anything about the Ten Commandments at all, or the meaning of them. And number two, they really don't know anything about themselves. They are deceived. That brings us back to the deeper meaning of the Ten Commandments, which Jesus explains in Matthew 5, when the Bible says, Thou shalt not murder. It's not just talking about taking a gun and putting it to someone's head. It's not just talking about taking a knife and putting it to somebody's throat. Jesus said, if you have an angry thought against your brother or your sister, he says, if you're bitter against your brother or your sister, just that thought itself says you have murder in your mind. So even though you're smiling on the outside, on the inside you have broken the sixth commandment because you are filled with hate and bitterness. Remember what Jesus said about adultery. Even to look at another person, to lust after them, is breaking the commandment against adultery. Even though you never jump into bed with somebody else who's not your husband or your wife. You can break the seventh commandment in your mind while being pure on the outside. Jesus is saying to this young man, you're looking good on the outside, but on the inside, you're not as good as you think you are. And the young man says, well, I've kept all these commandments since I was a boy to the best of my ability. I've not broken any of them. Then Jesus drops his bombshell. He says, okay, my friend, you think you're so good. You're not as good as you think you are. One thing you lack. Now that statement got the attention of this young yuppie and this young go-getter because anything a go-getter likes to do more than anything else is to accept a challenge. And he says, what do you mean? I've got money, I've got possessions, I'm well respected, I, I'm honest, I'm hard working, I keep the commandments. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. And that would have floored this young man. It's like saying to an artist, you're really good at what you do, except you're not really good with the colour blue. In fact, you, your blue sucks. <laughs> When it comes to going to heaven, it's not what you've got that counts. It's what you lack. I hope you understand that. When, it comes, when, we, when we're talking about going to heaven, it's not what you've got. It's what you lack. 
And Jesus is saying, you think you, you're so hot. You think you've got it all together. You think that you've got life all together. But one thing, he says, one thing you lack. Look at what Jesus says. You, lack, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Circle those verbs in that sentence. Sell. Give. Come. Follow. How would you like it if we made that the requirement of church membership to be on the parish roll? <laughs> Jesus said to this bloke, if you want to go to heaven, this is what you're going to have to do. Sell. Give. Come. Follow. Let's be honest, these are scary words, aren't they? <laughs> these are scary words. So let me say this. This is the only time in the New Testament Jesus says that to anybody as a condition of eternal life. This is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus, in the New Testament, that anybody was told to sell what they had and give it to the poor and then come and follow Jesus. But why did he say it to this bloke? If it's the only time he said it, it's the only time in the, it's, it's said in the New Testament. Why did he say it to this bloke? Because that's where this bloke had his problem. The first century yuppie who looked good on the outside, but on the inside was totally controlled by the love of money. Jesus was saying to this fine-looking, upstanding young citizen, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to break that hold on money in your life. For this man, money was not just an object or a thing. Money had become his God. Jesus knew it, and he touched this man at a point of his need. And he's saying, you're going to have to give up your idolatry of money before you come and be my disciple. And my friends, that principle is true today as it was true 2,000 years ago when Jesus spoke to this young ruler. And because it's true today, we need to hear it again and again and again. And that is that there is a bent in the human condition that loves money. There is a bent in our human condition that worships things that money can buy. There is a bent in our human condition that tries so desperately to get to the top of the ladder. It's so true that money can choke out the things of God. And I'm not saying we have to do literally what Jesus says here, but what I am saying is the principle is true. You can love money, sorry, you cannot love money and be a disciple. That's the principle. You cannot love money and be a disciple. Jesus set these rules down 2,000 years ago. That's just the way it is. Now you know what the most hopeful thing is in this story to me. It's in Luke, it's in, the, it's in verse 23 where Luke says to us, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. The words of Jesus hit home to him. He knew exactly what Jesus was saying. This is... The only case in the New Testament where somebody came to Jesus and Jesus gave them the truth and then let them leave and walk away. This man just walked away. 
Sorrowful and sad, the Bible says. Jesus didn't go after him and say, Ooh, let me lower the price. Let, let me make a deal with you so that you'll follow me, that you'll be my follower. Let me cut a deal with you. <clears throat> he told him the way it was. And the man walked away. Jesus knows the way that we are this morning. Verses 24 to 25 says, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Have you ever heard anyone explain to you the eye of the needle that represents some kind of tiny passageway in the, in the walls of the city of Jerusalem and you've got to get off the camel and get down on your knees? And, don't believe it. It's all false. That's okay? <laughs> not true. When he says the eye of a needle, he means the eye of a needle. Like the needle that you sew with, yeah? When he says camel, he means that big old smelly, ugly camel that rides across the desert, yeah? Jesus said, look at the camel and the eye of the needle. It's easier to get this big, ugly camel through the eye of the needle than for someone who loves money to go to heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm sorry, I might have popped somebody's balloon about that illustration, but it's just not true. <laughs> so why is that? Why is that? Because a person who loves money trusts in their stuff and what, that, and what their money can buy. It's easier for a poor person to get saved because a poor, a poor person says, if Jesus doesn't come through, I'm sunk. For those or for the one who trusts in that in what money can buy, uh, they say this, they say, if Jesus doesn't come through for me, it's okay. I've got my pension. I've got my stocks and bonds. I've got my shares. I've got my opinions. I've got my options. I've got a safety net. If Jesus doesn't come through, it doesn't matter. I can take care of things myself. It's impossible, Jesus says, for those who love their money to enter the kingdom of God. And so we start to ask the same question the disciples asked. Who then can be saved? And the answer comes in verse 27. What is impossible for mortals is possible for God. The message being this. Even rich people can be saved if they give up their trust in their riches. But the problem is, for the wealthy, money makes rich people feel secure. Money makes rich people feel in control. And the message is, yes, they can be saved, but they have to stop trusting in their riches. And they have to start trusting in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher from many centuries back, said, there is a God-shaped vacuum inside every human heart. Since nature hates a vacuum, if you don't fill it with God, it will be filled with money, sex, power, comfort, prestige, victimhood, or whatever you think you can find in this world that will satisfy your need will be sucked in to that God-shaped vacuum in your human heart. And it will be said of you, as it was said of the rich young ruler, one thing you lack. And that one thing has been the same one thing for thousands of years. 
That one thing being a dynamic, living, transforming relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. As I close, I come to two conclusions. The first one is as long as you make money the thing, make money and the things that money can buy, the measure of your life, you will be empty and unfulfilled. The second conclusion I've come to is whenever you stop trusting in money and the things that money can buy and turn your life over to Jesus Christ, then and only then will your heart be satisfied. The one thing you lack, God offers to you right now. The one thing you need is yours for the asking. So my friends, if you have discovered that having it all is not enough, if then, then please consider something that money can't buy this morning. If you would like to, if you would, would like a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ, then it's yours for the asking. Just open your heart to Jesus and he will come in. And if there's anyone here this morning who would like to do that, come and see me after the service and I'd be happy to pray with you. But this time, let us pray. Father God, you have promised bread for the hungry and rest for the weary. May those who hunger be filled with the bread of life. And may the weary find the rest that only Jesus can give. Forgive us for loving money so much that we have no room for you. Grant that we might realise our deepest need so that you can provide for us the one thing that we lack. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.